next two chapters describe in Joshua, as we come into chapter 16, the tribal allotment for the people of Joseph, as they're called in verses 1 and 4, Ephraim and Manasseh. There are a few um, site locations that are disputed, I guess, uh, but for the most part we can trace their southern boundary, mainly the southern boundary of Ephraim, from Jericho up to Bethel, over to Lower Beth Horon, down to Gezer, and onto the Mediterranean Sea in verses 2 and 3. We'll get there in just a moment. McMetha, which was near Shechem, marks their northern boundary, which shoots straight southward to southeast of Jericho, west along the wadi, which ran into the sea in verses 6 through 8. Manasseh's land was north of Ephraim's. Ephraim's northern boundary ran along Manasseh's southern border, chapter 17, verses 7 through 9. Then Manasseh's northern boundaries aren't as sharply defined. They touch Asher's inheritance on the north and Issachar's on the east. We'll read about that a little in 1710. But remember, again, it isn't a land survey. That's not what the text is doing. We now know that God is detailing the specifics of all that he had promised to his people. That's the point of all these labels and names and towns and borders. We won't uh, read this straight through tonight. We're going to try to cover 16 and 17. Um, we'll jump around the text a little bit to pick up on some of the themes. I think that's a little more important. There are several markers in the text tonight to pick up on. Um, there's notations, there's little anecdotes, little things that are said, repetitions that beg for our attention, that show us what the point is. They let us know mainly the point here is to start showing that things are not looking good for Israel's future in Canaan. And unbelief in God's promise has an increasingly negative effect on our lives and threatens the reception of our inheritance. And we, we have to be able to recognize when we're not content with all that God is for us in Christ through His promise. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for the truth that You have made known to us, God. We thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy. Lord, may they be evident as we consider how the state of our hearts has so much to do with the condition in which we live in the future that You have set our eyes on. And so, God, may we hear Your Word tonight and receive it. Help me preach in such a way that this can be done. And we ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we'll pick up chapter 16 here in verse 1. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Adaroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhetites, as far as the territory of Lower Bethoran, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. These first few verses remind us of how Israel's God works. How does He work? A reference to the people or the sons of Joseph, maybe in your translation, opens and closes this little section here in 1 to 4. In verse 4, they're defined for us specifically as Manasseh and Ephraim. We've been reading Ephraim and Manasseh all through the text, and then here it's Manasseh and Ephraim. This was their birth order. Manasseh was the older of Joseph's sons, but the writer starts by describing Ephraim's territory before Manasseh's in verse 5, which we'll get to, uh, or which you'll see 
a little later. Even though it's somewhat implicit then, the narrator still calls attention to the sovereign arrangement that had given the priority to Ephraim, even though he was not the older of these two brothers. Genesis 48 is the background for these chapters in Joshua. And God's arrangement was subtle even back there, at least at first. You remember Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob to bless them. But when Jacob first uh, refers to them, he vows that Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. That's a subtle switch, but it's deliberate. When When Joseph presents the boys for Jacob's blessing, he places Manasseh, the older, opposite of Jacob's right hand, naturally, and Ephraim on Jacob's left. Jacob is old and basically blind at this point, but he crossed his arms and placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, giving Ephraim the priority. Joseph knew that wasn't right, or so he thought, so he tried to straighten out his father, but Jacob assured him he knew what he was doing. It wasn't an accident or a mistake. In Genesis 48:20, Jacob blesses the boys, saying, When a blessing is pronounced in Israel, men shall use your names and say, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Then the writer of Genesis says, So he put Ephraim before Manasseh. That's precisely what is happening, that type of thing, in Joshua 16 and 17. Of course the writer knows the order of the birth. That's why he states it. He wants you to know that he knows that here in verse 4. But then he puts Ephraim in verses 5 through 10 before Manasseh. That's 17, 1 to 13. Now he doesn't do it with any fanfare. He's not making a big deal out of it. He's just reminding us of how God tends to work. God's ways will often reverse what is normal for our ways and overthrow what we think ought to be done or what we expect would be done. And that's important in Israel taking the land of Canaan. This is all to foreshadow what we think, we think of as the foolishness of how God saves. That's, that's why God does things in this weird way, because He's trying to say something ultimately about salvation. It goes against what is normal, what is owed, what is just by our standards, what we would expect. God means to show that He will work in the opposite way of what we would expect most of the time. And if God didn't do things this way, the opposite of what is normal, you and I wouldn't have any hope, would we? This might also explain why Judah's lot was mentioned back in chapter 15 before any of the other tribes. Judah's not the oldest. Judah wasn't first. He's even before Ephraim and Manasseh in the text. It may also reflect Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49, 8-12, especially that the scepter of the ruler would be planted between Judah's That's another one of the Lord twists. The Lord's twists. Judah wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the one favored with the birthright. And if we, the funny thing is, is if if we, we would think that maybe Judah was chosen because he was so much better than the others or something, you know, maybe because of how bravely he protected Benjamin in Genesis 43 and 44, which was wonderful. Remember, he's also the one who bedded a Canaanite prostitute, or so he thought that's who it was. And almost had her killed to save his own skin. So Judah will have the royal primacy, but not because of his birth or favoritism or virtue, but by the sovereignty of God who is no respecter of persons or of our works or of our rules and order. This is one of the reasons why we worship God, because he's like this. Now let's skip over here these, the rest of these uh, this description. Let's go into chapter 17. I'm going to pick up 17 in verse 3. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, 
had no sons but only daughters, and these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. So secondly tonight, in the case of Zelophehad, or Zelophehad's daughters, depending on your translation, we see how the word of God is pleaded upon to do what he says he will do. We get an example of that here. The background for this incident comes from Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, chapter 36, verses 1 through 12. One of Manasseh's descendants, a man named Zelophehad, had died without any sons, but he did have five daughters. They appealed to Moses, asking that what would have been their father's land inheritance not be given instead to the nearest male relative, but that they, his daughters, would be granted his full inheritance instead, even though, again, that's not normal, it's not customary. Moses referred the matter to the Lord. The Lord decides in favor or declares in favor of these daughters. In this request, Zelophehad's daughters were declaring their faith. The follow-up to them here in chapter 17 indicates that same sort of implicit faith remaining with them. They remind Eliezer and Joshua in verse 4, <coughs> excuse me, that the Lord had commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brother. Pardon me just one second. So, they stand out here like Caleb did in chapter 15. They boldly request what God had already promised. They're pleading God's previous word. Here's another example of that. That's all they're doing. Right? They're saying, oh, God said this. That's what we want. Mala and her sisters are pointing us to Christ in this text by doing that. We've all felt that hesitation when we see a little sign in a store at a hotel desk or something, something, ring bell for service. Maybe, maybe, maybe you pause when you see that, but nobody's there because you're looking around, you think anybody can see me do this. I don't want to be annoying. I don't want to be uh, rude or demanding. But these sisters remind us that Jesus is our great high priest in Hebrews 4 who is sympathetic to our needs because Jesus is who he is, because he is who he is, and he's done what he's done. We are told to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, and we will find mercy and help in our time of need. Ring the bell. They remind us to ring the bell that God has given to us. We ought to come to Him. We ought to do this and use what God has provided to do so. That's why Jesus is there. Need Him, right? These daughters teach us not to doubt or to waver when we want to lay hold of God's promised provisions. But here in chapter 17, we also read about how the tribe of Manasseh deviated from God's intended program, beginning in verse 7 with this. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Megmetha, Metheth Ath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of Entepua. The land of Tepua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tepua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Kana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities of Manasseh belong to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on to the north side of the brook and ends at the sea. 
the land to the south being Ephraim's, and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar, Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Ibleam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ta'anak and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Nephath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. The failure of Israel regarding the conquest of Canaan starts long before you get to the book of Judges, where it's just an absolute dumpster fire. It starts in the book of Joshua. It's already here. These chapters show us again and again how Israel allowed themselves to make these little exceptions that are actually repeated failures in believing God's promise. If we included 1563... With what we see here, there are actually three notes of this. 1563, 1610, and then 1712 to 13. All appearing at the end of the listing of the allotments. And notice, they intensify in how bad they are. First, you have Judah's inability in chapter 15. Then you have Ephraim's failure in regards to one city. And settling for Canaanite servitude instead of driving them out in 1610. And then you have Manasseh's massive inability or failure to control a number of strategic locations along with their preference even when they had become strong. Take note of that. To make Canaanites into slaves instead of destroying them as God had commanded. That's here in verses 12 and 13. These compromises went plainly against God's clear commands that they had been aware of for a long time. Right? Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. God has been clear, crystal clear about what they were to do, about what He wanted. God had told them, Canaanites cannot live in your lands. He had commanded Israel to destroy them completely. Give them no grace whatsoever. The threat to Israel was too great for any other strategy. The spiritual threat. So the instructions were severe. That, that's, that's the way it is when there's no mediator Crediting you with his righteousness, keeping the covenant for you. You're going to have to do it, and you're going to have to do it to the letter, or you're going to get overrun. Baal worship was a cancer that the Israelites could not fight on their own. So God's directives were clear as to what they should do to keep themselves from being infected by it, and they wouldn't do it. Yes, God had told them the conquest would be gradual in nature way back in Deuteronomy 7. 22 to 23, but here in Joshua, Ephraim and Manasseh's compromises show they've already lost the vision for the land entirely. It's already gone in their minds. They, the very fact that they did have dominance over them. How else, how else can you enforce labor if you don't have dominance over a people? Right? This was before the media, right? Before you could do that with the news. Now they, I mean, they, they had all the power. They could have done exactly what God told them to do. And instead, they're like, you know what we could do with these people? They don't want to do it. It was never the issue that they couldn't do it. They didn't want to do it. They didn't trust. What is so implicit in that is that they're not trusting that God will care for them. So rather than destroying their enemies, as God told them to do, they try to use them to their own advantage. 
And it's, it's, it's deadly. That compromise is particularly deadly. Let me co-opt this thing that God has forbidden me from fellowshipping with and worshipping to my own advantage. I can stay in control. I can keep the boundaries what they need to be. This is what we do all the time to this day. No matter what the sin is that we coddle, that's how we coddle it. We, we, we convince ourselves that we have the power to do something on our own. That's much easier than waiting for God to do it or letting God do it in that sense. They saw an advantage for themselves in keeping the Canaanites around, so they disobeyed. We very often do this. The initial victory had been won to take the land, occupying it, keeping it for the Israelites. That was work. That required more faith. And faith doesn't come naturally. Why not make a few compromises? We, we don't have to take the threat of idolatry that seriously. Idolatry is a really big sin. Like, we're not going to do that. We're, just because we allow the people to be our slaves doesn't mean we're going to worship their gods. Yet it sure does. That's precisely what it means. We start worshiping the things we think we're using to our advantage. Why? Because they're benefiting us in real time. This is dangerous. It's not good. It's dangerous. We'll always compromise for the sake of convenience when it gives us an advantage. When, when we think that by doing it this way, let's disobey God here because obeying Him would be easier if we did here. And beloved, it goes off the rails. It just goes off the rails because at its root is unbelief, not faith. We are in as much need of a Savior as Old Covenant Israel was. Now, there aren't any immediate consequences in the text for Ephraim and Manasseh and Joshua, but they will come. Right? That's, that's judges. They will come. And when they come, they'll be awful. Way worse than anything they would have thought they were doing with these little, what they consider to be little compromises. Verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Unreal. And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So what you see is compromise there. In, to verse 13, now it comes to its full flower, if you will, in verses 14 to 18. After all this, they have the goal to start getting frustrated with God as though the gift He's given is not enough. That's what they're saying. We don't have enough space because God has blessed us. There's so many of us. They complain that they've only been given one lot and one portion, though they're a numerous people. That last phrase is used three times in this passage. Once by the tribes, twice by Joshua. You are a numerous people. 
And of course, they say they are so large because Yahweh has blessed them in verse 14. We love to do this with our complaining. We love to try to make it righteous and spiritual. I just want to do what God wants. I just want to obey the Lord. I just want to, you know, God has been so good to us. Why shouldn't we do this? And why shouldn't we do that? And just do what He said. Because He said. Right? And He's trustworthy. So what does Joshua tell them in verse 15? First tells them, well, go up then. Clear out the land that you want. If you want more of it, there's so many of you. And certainly you have what you need to clear out even the refiam and take it. Their response to that shows what was really in their hearts. No, 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 we didn't mean that. No, we, we didn't mean that, Joshua. Joshua, it seems like Joshua is responding to a... Um, we can't take it. More than he's responding to, there's not enough land. He's responding to why they're not doing it. They, they don't think they can. The people of Joseph don't push into the plain of Israelion to the north where the Canaanites could use the cavalry, you know, and the, the, the chariots that is against, they, they don't want to push into that land. They can't beat it. Cavalry, they still think that, right? After all that God has done. Well, we, we can't do that. There's chariots and horses up there. Just give us just, you know, do it. Make the land bigger for us somehow. Normally, when you get behind griping, that, that's, that's what you'll find. It's just a sense of, yeah, yeah, okay, just give me what I want. Just give me what I want and everything will be fine. Like blackmail. Like that, that's what it is. Their response shows what's really in their hearts. The people of Joseph, they, they, they don't do it, yet there's so many of them Apparently that one lot is hardly enough, but they're not going to do what it takes to enlarge their territory. Why? Because they're discontent with God's gift. That's the problem. Right? You could read what Joshua is saying as like this shallow pep talk, but the fact is he's telling them the truth. Everything he's, he's saying, well, then do it. God has given them. I mean, that's what you want to do. Awesome. Do it. There's plenty of you to do it. And you've seen what God has done, so do it. He's banking on what God has said and made clear for these tribes if they will have faith to possess the land. Way back in Deuteronomy 7, God had already told Israel that they would think, He told them that this would happen. You'll think that you can't do this. You'll think the people are too great and it's too impossible and too hard. But it didn't matter because He was going to be with them. They have no reason to doubt here. They have no reason to be discontent with what God has given. They can trust Him. That even though when things seem against them and it doesn't seem like enough and it doesn't seem like they'll have what they need, they do and they will. They want more because it's not enough. Right? As they see it. But they want it also to just magically fall into their lap. Just like complaints and groanings from God's people today. Right? That they're there are people, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they are never satisfied. You can never do enough or make them happy. And even, even when the way is there for them to have peace, they still won't take it. They want everyone else to do it for them. The comparing or their complaining began with discontent over God's gift. 
The text shows us the problem is actually much deeper than that. What is discontent with God's gift? It's a lack of trust in God's word. Always has been, always will be. God has promised to supply everything that you need. Griping and complaining about anything you don't have is not just discontent, it's unbelief. It, it, it doesn't matter what it is that you desire and aren't getting, so you're complaining. Its root is unbelief. Yes, the enemy is great. The problem is real. The Bible doesn't ever pretend that it isn't. But they, they need to remember who God is and what God has said. That's the key to contentment. It's faithfulness. Because if you notice, no matter what you think will make you happy, when you get it, you're still not happy. There'll be more complaining about something else on down the road. Complaining and murmuring and griping only rips the problem out of the throne room and puts the ball in our court. And when that's where the battle is, the only weapons we have are to manipulate and gripe and complain until we can force someone else to act. If what we're facing is a real issue, there isn't one big enough that God cannot conquer. Right? Such a thing just doesn't exist. God isn't a slave to human odds. He's not bound by such things. His word is enough. All that He has promised to give you is so much better than anything we could gain by disobeying His word to get what we want. Because the path to satisfaction seems quicker and easier and more certain if we're in control of it and God comes alongside to help us. If we can just forget about the fact that we did it in an underhanded way. It's very... It, it, how do you sleep at night when the way that you got what you want is by sinning and going against the clear word of God? Beloved, it's, it's never going to help in the long run to doubt God's promises to the degree that we try to do things on our own or by our own understanding. Discontent in life of any kind is dissatisfaction with God's promise and God's provision. And we have to be able to call it what it is. That is precisely why God is so adamant that murmuring and complaining and gossiping and griping are sinful. And He loathed the Exodus generation for it. Why what would make us think that when we do it, it's justified? Like, the, the, you'll hear from the pulpit, you'll hear in the Word that it's a sin to gossip. It's a sin to gossip. It's a sin to murmur. It's a sin to complain. And we'll keep right on doing it. With no repentance. No accountability. Just murmur, 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 murmur. That becomes the culture. One of the reasons why it's so deadly. When it goes on unchecked, it becomes the culture. And then it becomes acceptable, and it's just, that's how we think, right? And, and we've, we've sanctified it, like, well, everybody should have a voice, everybody should be able, beloved, this is not, this is, this is a monarchy. The king has made a command. How could those who have Christ live in such a constant state of discontent that they complain and gripe all the time. 
nothing is ever good enough. Ever. They can't be satisfied. They can't be happy. Always offended. Increasingly bitter over the years. Interpreting everything as some personal attack on them. Personal affront to them. Why? Because there's no faith. There's no contentment in God's promise. There are things that make us mad that shouldn't make us mad. And yet they do. Why is that? Why do we have Christ and such small things make us so angry? That discord, it works like a cancer in the church. Why? Because at its root is discontent with God and His promise. Unbelief is at its root. Unbelief. That's the most unchristian thing that exists in the world. Unbelief. It means God is actually not enough. I know that I have what God has promised me, but if I don't get this little thing, I, right, whether it's in the church, whether it's in life, whether it's in family, in our relationships, and we've seen it destroy relationships. We know it doesn't go well when we push and push and push to get what we want at everybody else's expense. Eventually, when we get it, the ground is scorched. Was, was it worth it? See, the issue is that what, what God has promised to give, that's not actually what we want. No, that's not actually what we want. What God has promised to give, that doesn't meet the need of the moment. There's no way that, that my inheritance fixed in the future for me is supposed to be read back into my present as though that's enough for me to be okay now. No, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. The issue is that you only doubt someone else's word when you question their character or think too highly of your own, right? When has God ever given us a reason or a justification to do that? We could make a very strong case that there's about nobody you can trust to keep their word anymore in the world. But not so with God. God had laid out Israel's inheritance on a silver platter. And if they had trusted Him, there's nothing they would have lacked. They would have suffered no defeat. Well, beloved, God is not less trustworthy today now that Christ has come. If murmuring, complaining, and griping didn't make sense then, how do... My goodness, it doesn't make sense now. Like, what's wrong? Why is He not enough? Why is what He has promised to give you that nobody can take from you, why is that not enough? We, we need to put those things in their proper place in our own mind for the sake of our own faith because those little compromises over time, they're going to chip away at faith and we're going to need it. As love waxes cold and the days get darker, we're going to need it. That's the means. First Peter's very clear. The means by which we receive this inheritance is faith. We are kept through faith. That's God's means of keeping us, of preserving us. Faith. So when we see our faith slipping, we need to go back to its source and say, Father, give me the faith to overcome my discontent, to overcome my anxiety and my frustration and my bitterness, my anger, my resentment of the gifts you have given me in my life. 
today, you and I, we reap what Jesus has sown. It's all good now. It has all been granted to you, promised to you, secured for you by God in Christ. It's yours. You'll have everything God says you're going to have. And you had better believe that should infect the present with hope. If it doesn't affect the mundane areas of my life, where does it affect me? Like spiritually in some cloud that doesn't have anything to do with my daily life? No, it, it, it's meant to influence us now. And the way that comes out is that I have enough hope and peace that I don't need to force my way to get anything. I can just trust that what God has given is enough. Don't doubt the promise. Don't get weary with God's timing. Believe instead that it is finished and because He finished it, you'll receive all of it. It's yours, beloved. Rest in Christ. Would you stand, please?